chapter 3. We're going to read together verses 19 all the way to verse 29. But our study will be on just two verses, verses uh, 22 and 23. I want to make sure that I uh, manage your expectations this morning. We're just going to cover two verses, but we want to read to get a, a good, good just understanding of the context. Read um, from verses, verse 19 all the way to verse 29. If you would stand uh, for the reading of God's word, Galatians 3 verse 19. <clears throat> Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither a slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, you might be somewhat disappointed by the end of the message because the conclusions will seem somewhat obvious to you. But we want to pause and slowly study these two verses because as simple as these conclusions are, they are watershed points. They are fundamental. They are uh, crucial to our Christian lives, our identity, our, our, how, we, how we live, how we obey, how we minister, how we conduct ourselves as Christians. So on the one hand, the conclusions are, are simple. <clears throat> but if you are <clears throat> tracking with me to any degree, you will, agree, you will find that the implications are very difficult complex and numerous. In fact, when we extrapolate these conclusions to our Christian lives, the implications, the ramifications are endless, are countless, and they uh, affect every area of our lives. And it is the foundation for the rest of our study in the book of Galatians. That is why <clears throat> we are slowing down to first gear we're going to look at just two verses, but before we dive into those two verses, <coughs> we want to take a step back, take a step back from this tree and look at the whole forest. Last Sunday, <clears throat> for the first service, I made a point to somewhat balance what Paul was saying about the law. Second service, I, I, I wasn't able to do that. But we, we want to step back and look at the law in a grander way so that we do not think that Paul is uh, denigrating the law. He's not an antinomian. And we are not antinomians. Paul was not trampling on the He was not speaking against the law. He was speaking about the law lawfully. He was agreeing with the law. 
something that the Pharisees and the Jews of his time largely missed. And sadly, it is something that many Christians miss as well. And that is the reason for legalism. That is the reason for bondage. That is why so many Christians live lives uh, without joy, without freedom, without, without complete faith in Christ alone. So that is where we are headed to that end. Step back. And I want you to step way back, and not just back, but step back in time. About 6,600 years ago, uh, to, a, to, to Mount Sinai, uh, all the way back, recorded for us in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. You will find gathered there over 2.3 million Israelites. Uh, they, 90 of them had entered into Egypt, and in a matter of uh, 70 years, they had multiplied uh, to... Uh, uh, 2.3 million, no, 400 years. They have, excuse me, many years. I, I want to make sure I, I, don't, I don't have it with me. Many years, they multiplied into over 2.3 million people. They were liberated by the mighty hand of Yahweh, the covenant name that God gave to Moses. He delivered them from slavery. They were all eyewitnesses to the destruction of the greatest army of their time. Egypt was their superpower. They were the mightiest nation on the land. Their chariots were feared. And yet they saw with their own eyes, Yahweh, destroy this army, annihilate them, and deliver them to himself. They are gathered at the foot of this mountain, and they saw God, Yahweh, descending on the mountain in a cloud, in a dark cloud, accompanied by thunder and lightning, fire and smoke. God had commanded them. I don't think it was necessary. I doubt anyone would have approached the mountain. But God commanded and warned them not to approach the mountain. For anyone who approaches the mountain will surely die. They are there, this awesome and great God of Israel, who lives in unapproachable holiness, was present. On the third day, um, God came down on Mount Sinai. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses alone went up to the mountain. Exodus 20 records for us, from the smoke, Fire, thunder, and lightning, God spoke to Moses. And Yahweh said, I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Some have called this the preamble to the Ten Commandments. He gives um, uh, the reason why he has the authority to give commands to the people of Israel. Why he has the right uh, to give these commands to his people. God here defends via this prologue his authority as the lawgiver. He alone has the sole and legitimate right to give this perfect law and demand perfect obedience because of who he is. He is Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. He is the supreme, sovereign, uncaused causer of all things in the universe. He alone reigns over all the earth because of who he is and because of what he has done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, a summation of what had occurred. On this basis, he gives them his laws. He, he gives himself. He gives his heart. He, I, he identifies with his people. You are my people. I am your God. This is your prized possession. This is your treasure. This is what marks you out from all the people that I give you my laws and I will bind myself. I will covenant myself with you. 
I, I will sign a contract, not with any other country, any other nation, any other people, only with you, I will, I will betroth myself to you. And so the Israelites, for them, this was their, their gift, their treasure, their identity. Um, God put the tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place where His Shekinah glory resided. And that temple was in the midst of the people of God. God was with them. They were with God. And God gave them His commands. And His commands were theirs. And this was their prize. This was their boast. This was their identity. And yet here comes Paul. Not only does he convert to Christianity, someone who was um, zealous for the law, he boasted with them. He was passionate for the laws of Moses. Not only does he, um, uh, in their eyes, betray the law, not only in their eyes is he a Benedict Arnold, become a traitor by becoming a Christian himself, Paul is not just content to follow Jesus. From their eyes, he is um, speaking against their prized possession. Paul is going around speaking against, speaking out, um, in their eyes, denigrating the law um, and speaking against God in this way. Acts 21, 27 through 28 the Jews, when Paul went back to Jerusalem, he went back to this um, city. They were going through a famine. Many believers were poor. They were hungry. After he collected uh, money from the, the churches at Macedonia, he went back to give them uh, this gift. And he was um, arrested by the Jews that had come from Asia. And they rallied the people against Paul. And their charge against them against him was... Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. So we, we found this guy. We've caught him. We have him in our hands. We need to stone this guy because he's speaking against us. He's speaking against this temple. He's speaking against the law. Now, As I said, Paul was not anti-law. He was not speaking out against the law. Paul understood that that there were two uh, perspectives, two angles, two purposes of the law. There were two um, sides to the law, and they're both concurrent. They worked in accord. They worked together. Like two sides of a single coin, they were both a part, a key components of the law, they work together. One was positive, one was negative. Right? One aspect of the law was positive. And I'm going to say what I'm going to say, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to say what I said. Right? So I'm going to say what I'm going to say, which is the law was positive in that it revealed God's holiness and revealed God's will for his people after their redemption, that if they obey this law, they will live. It's positive. This is who I am. You do this, you will live. But there was also a negative aspect of the law, right? Which is what we studied last week. Negative purpose was God gave this sin to increase trespass, to promote death to increase guilt, isolation, increase condemnation. Because, this is what I'm going to say in a few minutes, because that dynamic occurs because, not because the law is weak or sinful or evil. The law is holy, just, and good, but weakness is in our sinfulness. God commands what is good, but because we are sinful, the result is death. The law doesn't kill us. This is all, I'm going to say this in a few minutes, okay? The law doesn't kill us. It's sin killing us. It's not the law's fault. It's our fault. But it is the intent of the law for this purpose. Paul understood that. 
So when Paul was speaking negatively about the negative aspect of the law, he wasn't speaking out against the law. He was agreeing with the law just on the negative aspect of it. Right? He was agreeing with the negative purpose of the law. Now, there are many ways to, not many, there are few, there must, be, there, must, there must be several ways to label these two concurrent perspectives, purposes. Thomas Shriner's book that I recommended last week, 40 Questions About the Law and the Christian Life, he labels them the imminent purpose and the transcendent purpose. The imminent is not the I, like it's going to happen right any time now, like the imminent return of Christ. It's imminent with an A, meaning divine presence. Right? The imminent perspective of the law, that's the positive. And the transcendent, it, it just overrides history. Right? It's, 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 it's an all-encompassing perspective of the law, which is the negative aspect. I have, I have this quote here. To my trusty aides, Jason and Peter, um, he wrote, If one kept the law, then the law would be a vehicle for life. If one looks at the law from this restricted perspective, then the law was given to grant life for those who observed it. That nevertheless, what Paul emphasized, emphasizes repeatedly is that God sovereignly intended the law to reveal transgression and to bring about death. So the first is positive, second is negative, first is imminent, second is transcendent. Are these two perspectives contradictory? Not at all. It is simply a matter of looking at the purpose of the law from two different perspectives. From an imminent perspective, the law was intended to give life. But from a transcendent perspective, it was given to increase sin. Right? So, I, so I'm going to say it now, right? The imminent perspective, the imminent purpose. Why did God give the law? That's the question of verse 19. Right? That's the question that Paul heard everywhere when he was speaking about the transcendent purpose of the law. Why the law? Why did God give the law? What is the purpose then? If we are not under the law as Christians... If we are in Christ, we're united with Christ, therefore we're under grace. Why did God even ever give the law in the first place? It is of no use to us. Away with the law. There have been movements in Christianity where let's cut out the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament because we're under the new covenant. Paul would say, no, don't cut out the Old Testament. Don't put away the law. There is an imminent purpose of the law which is precious for all believers and of course Christians as well. Even though we're not under the law, the law is a gift to us even though we're not Israelites. Why? Because the law reveals the holiness of God. God inscribed the law with his own finger. Deuteronomy 9.10 He ordered that this be kept in the most holy place. Deuteronomy 10.5 He ascribed qualities to the law that he himself possessed. Holy, good, and just. Only God is holy. Only God is good. Only God is just. In Romans 7.10, this is how Paul describes the law of God. In the law, we see the glory of God. And the law reveals who our God is, that he is a thrice holy God. First Peter 1, 15, 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the primary function of the law. That when we sin against God, it's not so much we sin against His laws. We sin against His holiness. Right? His justice, His righteousness. Right? You know, we, we you know, the value of, a, of the law 
is really dependent on the, um, the morality, the ethics, the righteousness of the government that has written those laws. Our view of laws written by North Korean dictator would not be held in high, high esteem as compared to laws written by our country. Depending on the lawgiver, we would esteem um, their laws. Likewise, God's revelation of his holiness reveals that when we break God's laws, it is, a, it is evil, it is wickedness, it is sin, because of who gave the law and he is holy. That is why we fall short of the glory of God when we sin. Because we are sinning against the, our sin is in our intent, in our heart, in our thoughts, not just in the act. For when we fail to meet the law or when we violate the law, we sin against the lawgiver who is holy. This is the character of God revealed in his laws that he is a perfectly righteous, holy, and just God. This is the imminent perspective, imminent purpose that is valuable forever, eternity. This never changes. For all people, all believers, in all human history, this function of the law does not, is not diminished. Paul is not speaking against this perspective of the law. Not only that, a secondary reason underneath that is the law was given so that we might have life. The law was given to give life. A, a popular Jewish proverb was, the more Torah, the more life. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Right? I am the Lord. So he says, you obey my commands, you will live. This is a way to life. And he, he said in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 15, I made it easy for you. The law is not in heaven where you have to go and get it. The law is not across the seas where you have to sail across open waters to get to it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, the word is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. I have set for you, see? See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. If you obey my commands, Deuteronomy 30, 16, by loving your God, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, you will live but if you turn your heart away, if you forget me and you disobey, you will surely die. So this is the imminent perspective. That's why the Old Testament saints uh, love the law. And we love the law. You and I, we read Psalm 119 verse 97 and David says, oh, how I love your law. And, you know, he wrote, oh, in the Hebrew. I don't know what that word is, but he wrote it there because they translated it rightly. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all the day. As New Testament Christians who are not under the law, we read verse 97 and we say a hearty amen. Because we love the law. We meditate on it because we find in the law... Our God, He is a holy, righteous, sovereign God who has given this law to give life to His people. In verse 77, He said, Thy law is my delight. Verses 103 to 104, David wrote, How sweet are thy words unto my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. And then down in verse 159, he said, Consider how I love your precepts. Right. So, um, as Apostle Paul said in Romans 7.12, the law is holy, just, and good. Believers, we agree 
and say the law is holy, just, and good. We love the law of God. Jews and Christians. And I would venture to guess most religions, people adhere to religions from the Judeo-Christian uh, you know, foundation would, are, are in agreement. We all love the law in this way. If we had a Jewish rabbi standing here, he would say, yes, I love the law because it reveals the, the character of God. And it's through the law we have life. Where we diverge, where we go in different directions is in the trans, transcendent perspective. The transcendent purpose of the law. The, the Jews missed it. Jews didn't see it. Jews heard it and rejected it. Paul saw it. Paul preached it. And this is what the law does. And yet when the Jews heard it, they thought Paul was speaking against the law. When Paul was just agreeing with the law, that the law has a reverse dynamic in people. It's got this negative effect, negative result. Um, do we have the second quote? If one looks at God's, great. Again, by Thomas Schreiner. You know, I, I'm quoting a lot this morning because I don't have any original thoughts in this whole law gospel dynamic. I am learning under their feet, so I'm a messenger. I'm delivering onto you what I received from these faithful teachers. Schreiner said in his book, if one looks at God's transcendent purpose, then the law was given to increase sin and reveal sin. Such a conclusion is verified by Romans 2, 1, 2, and 3 and verse 20. Even though the Jews enjoyed the privilege of knowing God's law, the privilege brought no saving advantage since Israel transgressed the law. The law did not secure Israel's salvation, but revealed her transgression and her heart hard and unrepentant heart. Indeed, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law uncovers human sin and discloses to us our inability to please God through our obedience. Thomas Schreiner. So the law was given to identify, reveal, and increase man's transgressions. God's holy law reveals to man just who he is and what he has done and how helpless he is to undo who he is and what he has done. And the law increases transgressions, increases um, sin, wickedness, and evil. It doesn't curb spiritually uh, sin in the sin in man. Uh, J. Dwight Pentecost I'll just read it. The holiness of God as revealed in the law became the test of man's thoughts, words, and actions. It is this fact that Paul had in mind, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is not only want of conformity onto the law, but the lack of conformity onto the holiness of God of which the law is a revelation. So this is what I said before. I'm saying now, the law reveals, these aren't just laws. The laws reveal God's holiness. And when we break God's law, we're not just breaking his laws. We're falling short of his glory, his glory, which is his holiness. That is our transgression. And the law reveals that and increases that. That was our study last week, right? Hamartia, Parabeseo. Hamartia is falling short. Parabeseo is willful violation, right? High-handed, premeditated, intentional sin. The law was given for Parabeseo that it would increase our intentional sins. Um, and we looked at Romans 7, and Paul said, I would not have known what covetousness was until God said, do not covet and once that command came, I had all these covetous thoughts. Right? I was overwhelmed by them, and sin killed me. I was talking to um, um, Adam Baconis, and he was sharing with me uh, sinfulness, not of his child, but his brother's daughter. 
right? He was telling me about Ryan and Stephanie and Samantha, right? I tried to go on Facebook to confirm her name, but Ryan and Steph aren't on Facebook. What's going on with that? You know, they're like, they're young people, but they're not on Facebook. Encourage them today. Um, <clears throat> so Adam was telling me about his niece, how she, they will walk around their neighborhood and there'll be a kitten, I guess. I don't know why. I didn't, I didn't like ask her to explain the whole story, but somehow there's always a kitten nearby. And Samantha never touches a kitten, always walks by, doesn't bother the kitten. But this day, for some reason, uh, Stephanie told her daughter, don't kick the kitten. For no reason. She never does that. Well, after saying that, Samantha turned around to the kitten and was trying to kick her. I kicked this kitten repeatedly and have to constantly tell her and pull her away. And so Adam told me how his niece is a sinner, right? (laughs) And how you see that sin dynamic. Right. No desire to kick a kitten. You say, don't kick. What does Samantha want to do? Right? So, okay, Stephanie's right there. Right? She wants to kick that kitten. We all understand that dynamic in our hearts. Right? Now, Romans 7, again. I'm repeating a lot because I want this to be just hammered into our minds. Uh, is the law at fault? Right? Is the law? So if you're parents, you know. Like, if you command your child, right, you know they're not going to obey this time. You know what they're thinking. You know what their heart state is. You tell them, right, um, don't, uh, don't get angry or don't cry or don't be selfish. You know they're not going to obey. But you can't be blackmailed. You can't be emotionally blackmailed to your children because if you don't command them because you know how they'll respond, then you're not leading the family. You're not the parent. That three-year-old boy or girl is the parent of the home, and they're leading you by it. They're, they're leading you. You're not leading them. So you can't submit to them. So you command them knowing they'll disobey, and they disobey, and you feel guilty, right? You feel bad, right? You experience this, like you tell a child to come, and the child cries, and, so you, and the parent scolds them and you feel guilty it's my fault for that child to get you know disciplined or scolded because i was the one asked that child for a hug and the child is uh responded that way and it's my fault well god's paul saying no but it feels like it's the law's fault but it's not the law's fault it's our fault it's our sinfulness and what caused the death it's not the law it's my flesh deceiving me, and that is what has killed me, put me to death. Paul was um, speaking of this when he was speaking about the law. He was saying the law is great, revealing the holiness of God. And if you are righteous, if you were Adam, you love the law until you, you know, broke the law. Until then you love the law because by the law you lived. But if you look at the law as a way, a means for justification, as a means to be get right with God, to be accepted by God, to be approved by God, to earn His love, the law is not a blessing. It doesn't, it doesn't give life. It curses you. It condemns you. He'll say later, it imprisons you, right? It, it, it destroys you. It, it, it causes you to, you to be undone. It is your enemy because of our sinfulness. It causes us to die. It causes our death. This is, uh, turn with me to Romans 9. And this is what caused Paul no small amount of sorrow and anguish in his soul. He saw the Israelites. He knew them. They were his brethren. They were his people. They, were, they had such zeal for the law. They loved the law. Yet because they didn't see this transcendent perspective, purpose of the law, they, they missed out and they were condemned under it. Romans 9 verse 30, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness, that is by faith. 
But that Israel, verse 31, ethnic Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Is that what we're saying? That Gentiles who did not pursue it received righteousness? And yet here are Israelites who are pursuing righteousness through the law, did not attain it? That is what we're saying. Why? Verse 32, because they, the Israelites, did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God put this rock. Anyone who believes will not be ashamed, will be vindicated, will not stumble. But because they approached the law without faith, the rock, instead of being their salvation, it became their stumbling block. It led them to go astray from God. And so this caused Paul such sorrow and agony because they were so close. I mean, they were right there. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, right? My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I'm not against my brethren. I'm not against the Israelites. I'm not speaking against them, their temple, and their law. I'm speaking for them. I want them to be saved. But for them to be saved, they need to have a right understanding of the law. I bear witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And verse 4 is the jugular verse. You know, later, maybe in a few months or a few years, you feel compelled to tithe. In a few years, few months, few months or few years, you feel bound in your heart in bondage, the law, you feel condemned by it because of your faithlessness in terms of observing special days. You feel like you're not right with God because of something that you aren't doing or you're doing wrong. I pray you remember Romans 10.4. It says there, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those, to everyone who believes. Christ is the telos of the law. Now, Jason Meyer, in the book that I recommended last week, that word telos is a good English word, good translation, the end. It is the goal, it is the purpose. But many other words can be used to translate that word telos. It could be culmination, right? It could be climax, it could be the fi finality. Um, Christ is the goal of the law. He fulfilled the law for righteousness. And so to everyone who believes, they're united with Christ and they've attained that righteousness. Um, Jason Meyer said, Christ became Thanks, Jason. The other Jason. Christ became what Israel was supposed to be, but failed to be. Therefore, Christ fulfills the purpose of making Israel the means by which the world can be saved. So Christ, uh, leave, leave it up there for a little bit. Christ fulfills the purpose of making Israel the means by which the world can be saved. Israel failed. Christ succeeded. And therefore, to everyone who believes, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. And he is the culmination of it. So therefore, we are no longer under the law. Right. Now, that was all introduction. Right? That was the intro. And if you leave, I apologize if you're lost. I, I, it's my fault. But if you are... Are, are, you know, hanging with me, if you're, if you're tracking with me, then I hope this pays off. I think it'll pay off, right? This leads us to Galatians. See, Jews missed this transcendent 
purpose of the law. Some of these Jews became Christians. And they still didn't know the transcendent purpose of the law. Therefore, as Christians, they only saw the positive side of the law. Therefore, they began to impose the law on fellow Christians. They only saw the law as reveals the holiness of God. You obey, it leads to life. But they didn't see the temporality, the the finiteness of the law. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. That the telos was Christ. They saw the law atemporally, right? Infinitely, past, present, and future. And so as Christians, because they didn't have a right view of the law, they imposed this law to Christians and said, Oh, you're a Gentile Christian. I understand. You didn't get the law. You didn't grow up in a good Jewish family like I did. Therefore, you want to grow in Christ. You want to really experience God. You want to be used by God. Then here are the laws, 631 laws of the Old Testament. Beginning with circumcision, you obey. Then you will become a righteous Christian. What Paul was saying, he was speaking against that. But he was agreeing with the law. He wasn't speaking against the law. He was saying that aspect of the law ended with Jesus. And if you compel others to go back to the law, you are, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, you're going into paganism, right? You're, you're, you're becoming a, a person who believes in rituals, believes in outward rituals for spiritual effect. But worse than that, you are severing yourself from Christ. You are falling away from grace. And that is the Galatian controversy. Paul is dealing with the problem of how a person is sanctified. These Jews who did not see the transcendent perspective of the law were trying to impose the law of the Old Testament to Christians. And in that way, they were leading people astray. And this is why Paul was speaking against the law on that aspect, on that purpose of the law, that it has been concluded by Christ. Do we have um, J. Hampton Keithy's quote, the basic principle? The basic principle is that the fusion of law and grace brings a confusion which results in sterile legalism. I like that quote. Right? So as a Christian, if you say, well, law is good. It reveals the holiness of God. You live, you obey, you live. So you try to mix law and grace. The result is confusion, which is, results in sterile legalism. Right. The, the parallel is the Israelites, they're liberated from slavery and they want to go back to Egypt. And they for, they've forgotten about the bondage. They've forgotten about the whipping. They've forgotten about laboring and just their horrible experiences as slaves because they missed food like spices, you know, cumin, dill, like, you know, onions. They want to go back to Egypt. What Paul is saying is likewise. If you, want, if you seek the law, you're, you want to go back to prison. And then Galatians 3.22, 23. This was our, our past. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Christ may be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned under the coming faith would be revealed. The picture here of this prison is not a jailer, right, who has the key to lock and unlock prisoners. That's not the idea here. It's rather the holy word of God, the law convicting us, accusing us of guilt, right? We're hopelessly um, incarcerated. We were shut up under sin. We were held in custody burdened with the law, and we were experiencing this vicious cycle. 
right? Of um, we're, we're, we're insecure because of our guilt and shame. We studied the law and we discovered that he's a thrice holy God and he had given us these commands and yet we fail to obey the law and so we, we're in despair, right? We are filled with anxiety or filled with guilt and remorse and shame. The vicious cycle is instead of being rescued from this, we exasperate it by going back to the law, right? To find to be justified by the law. We seek to obey the law, but that makes it worse because through the law we discover how more holy God is and how more laws he, we have broken. And it causes us greater guilt, greater shame, greater condemnation. We are beaten down. And then we make some resolutions. We get our feet under us. And so we go, this time I'm going to really try to climb this mountain. We go back to the law to be justified by God through obedience. And what happens? We find that God is even more holy than we ever thought. And we are more unrighteous. We're beaten down again. This is the vicious cycle that we were in. This imprisonment. And Christ came, Luke 4.18. And what did he say? I have come to set the captives free. Luke 19.10. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ came to liberate us from the law. Right? To set us free. Not from the imminent perspective of holiness, and obedience, right? No, from the transcendent, which is we cannot obey. We are sinners. Before the law ever came, we were sinners. And so we were in this imprisonment, in this vicious cycle. And Jesus, our victor, came and he rescued us. And he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes. Therefore, We are no longer under the law of Moses, no longer under the Old Testament commands. We are under the law of Christ. So these well-meaning, perhaps well-meaning Judaizers, right? They thought they were helping Christians. No, they were they were destroying Christians, and they were going around finding people, weak-willed women, like widows. But I I think people who are struggling with sin. They find people ensnared with failures and constitutional sins, sinful habits, right, addictions. And they find people like this in the church and they go to them and go, oh, you're struggling. You're not growing. You're not experiencing victory and spiritual power. I have the answer for you. It's the law, right? The law is holy, just, and good. Right? The law reveals the character of God. Right? I'll teach you Obey these laws and you will experience victory over your sins. It's like, I wouldn't know firsthand, but like steroids. Or it's like other drugs. I wouldn't know firsthand those drugs that give you a short burst of energy. The law, you cram your conscience with the law. It'll give you short-term victory, but it's all deception. It'll ensnare you take you back into bondage, into this vicious cycle. And that's what Paul was warning the church against. These law people who are going around finding weak-willed Christians and pouncing on them and leading them astray. Paul's saying, you you go back to that, you're going back to prison. Um, We are not under the law, we're under Christ. I hope the two angles, two aspects of the law is clear. Closing thoughts. Right? Three closing thoughts. First of all, you must use the law lawfully. We talked about this last week as well. Right? There is a law, there's a right use of the law and a wrong use of the law. It's like, a, it's like fire. Fire in the fireplace is a great thing or a good thing. Fire on your couch is an awful thing, right? You tell your children that, right? Right? Like fire 
you know, on your, t- you know, on your furniture is a bad thing. Likewise, law in its proper place, used rightfully, it's a great thing. It's holy, just, and good. It is for non-believers. It's for non-Christians. And you preach a high view of the law, right? You preach a law so high, it condemns people, not just of their hamaria, you know, they fall short. Oh, no one's perfect. We're all, we all make mistakes. No, you're worse than that. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're a liar. You're guilty not just of hamaria. You're guilty of willful violation of the law of God in your heart. So much so, your, your goodness, your righteousness condemns you. Your morality condemns you. Law is for non-Christians, not for Christians. Law is given to increase sin for non-believers. For Christians, the law is character of God. He's holy. The law is our wisdom, our guide, reveals God's will for us. But the transcendent perspective view of the law ended with Jesus, Romans 10.4. Secondly, Christians are not under the law of law, but we are under the law of Christ. Now, um, some have said, where are the applications, right? So what am I supposed to do now? How do I live? The, what are, what, I need a list. So today I'm going to give you a list, right? I, ha, I don't know if we have it. We have it. Thanks, man. You guys are just great. Um, I have a a list of what we are to do. Um, and Titus 2, 11 through 12 said, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Those three categories, self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives. So um, J. Hampton Keithley in his uh, journal article gave us three categories, duties towards God, duties towards others, duties towards yourself. This, these are the laws of Christ for us. This is God's will for us. Right? This is the law of grace for Christians. This is the list. Duties toward God, positive and negative. The positive is our duty is to trust Him. Love Him. Be thankful to Him. Serve God. Pray to God. Live in accordance with God's will. Walk in the Spirit. Hold fast to sound doctrine and contend for the faith. Witness for Jesus. Do everything unto Him. Be diligent in devotion and study of His Word. That's our duties under Christ to God. The negative is do not have idols. Do not receive false teachers. Do not mock or speak against God. Second category, duties toward other fellow beings. The positive is, love everyone, especially fellow Christians. Be sympathetic and compassionate. Forgive and forbear. Right? Deal honestly and fairly. Do good to all and help everyone. Tell the truth. Be courteous and live peacefully with all. Treat others as we would like for them to treat us. Provide a good example for others. Urge brethren to good works and seek to restore backsliders. The negative we are not to do. Do not lie or bear false witness. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery or fornication. Do not judge others or speak evil of them. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not have fellowship with professing Christians who live in scandalous sin. Do not go in a lawsuit with fellow believers. Do not glory in men. Avoid troublemakers and useless disputes. Do not have unpaid debts. Duties toward yourself. Right? Be holy, cleave to the good and do good to all, study the word of God and meditate on sacred things, grow spiritually, think on good things, 
Think soberly about yourself. Be ambitious in the right way. Be content with what God gives you. Rejoice in the Lord. Live in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. Judge yourself and confess your sins to God. Conserve time for good purposes. Cultivate your mind. Do useful work. Keep your body clean, men, and in good health, right? The negative is of her evil, avoid pride, women, right? Do not conform, <laughs> do not conform to or love the world. Do not fellowship with evil. Do not sin through anger, everybody, parents. Right? Do not worry. Do not be lazy, children. Right? Do not use filthy speech. Do not become drunk. Do not complain. Right? So that's, that's, that's enough of a list for us, right? That, that's good enough, right? So we see we're not under the law of the Old Testament. These commands do not increase trespasses. Because the law of Christ. Because Christ is the end of the law. Right? We go to the Old Testament law, then we fall away with grace. But if we're in Christ and we're under the law of grace, this only has positive dynamic for us. Now, third and finally is, but still as believers, the final thought is, there is a vicious cycle for believers. And... Uh, Luther experienced it, Spurgeon experienced it, John Piper experienced it, I experienced it, and you experienced it. It's when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we see, we know God is holy and righteous and perfect. And we see our sinfulness and we feel guilty, we feel shameful, we feel, we feel just... It's miserable in our sins. And we're in this cycle, and we think the way to experience God, have the Spirit, feel good, way to like experience holiness is by obeying the law, the law of Christ. It's, it's viewing the law of Christ without faith. If I, the list that James gave me, if I perfectly obey, then I'll be happy then I will be righteous, then I will grow. If you approach the, these laws without faith, same vicious cycle, right? And it's this continuing cycle where you make these commitments. Every Sunday, you make these, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm fed up with myself. No more excuses. I'm going to work out five times this week. I'm going to throw away my junk food. I'm going to do my quiet time every day. I'm going to journal, I'm going to pray, I'm going to witness every day. And then you fail and you come on Sunday. And you feel miserable at the beginning. By the end, you want to, more resolutions. I'm going to be righteous this week. I'm going to do better. And it's this vicious cycle. And all the while, the result is growth and insecurity, anxiety, critical spirit, anger, self-righteousness, judgmental spirit. And you lack joy, lack freedom, lack intimacy with Christ. Like how we became saved, how we continue in our salvation is to fix our eyes on Christ. This list is what God does in us as we trust in Him. We strive, we make every effort, but it is the fruit of the Spirit it's not deeds of the flesh. We'll get there in Galatians 5, but it's completely different. Deeds of the flesh are what we do. The f- singular fruit is what the Holy Spirit produces in us. And how does he do this? By trusting in him, by being filled with the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit. And that's just a metaphor for believing, trusting, depending, beholding, abiding in Christ. Do this, and God produces this in us, and he rescues us. He delivers us from this prison, not just when we're saved, every day. Right now, right, the burdens, the heartaches, the anxieties in your heart right now, right, we all have them. What is the way out? 
who's going to rescue us? Just like our salvation, our faith is, it is Jesus. We relinquish control. We want that control because of our pride. We relinquish control and we trust Christ to do it according to his perfect will. Then we are delivered from this vicious cycle where we're able to humbly walk with him. Let us pray. Lord, we, um, Lord, I, I, I pray and I ask your spirit to work in my heart. I ask for your spirit to work in all of our hearts. We feel so um, weak because we're fighting on our own strength. We're seeking to um, manage our Christian lives. We are seeking to fight our sin and fight our flesh. And there is a weariness in our souls because we are far too often and far too much reliant on ourselves. God, we pray that Romans 10.4 Galatians 3, 22 and 23 would deal a death blow to our pride that you have delivered us. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Therefore, we will come to you in your gospel and rest in your truth. And behold, the risen Lord and our union with him how as we trust you will work in and through us God we ask for this grace to stay that we will not make resolutions to stay we will not make commitments or decisions we would cry out to you for help we would pray to you we would seek you and long for you and thirst for you and we'd be satisfied with you In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.